Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m. Time for lunch and learn our weekly Torah session. We've been away for a couple of weeks and we are back ready to study Torah together. And we'll begin momentarily. I'll begin with a blessing over a cup of water. Baruch atah denoi elaheinu malach oilam sha'akon yabedvarei. Every week on Tuesday at 12.15, we study Torah together, and today is Lunch and Learn number 122. Since we began this study session over two years ago, almost three years ago, wow. Hi Jody, hi Roy, and it's great to see you. <coughs> We've been away for a while, and... We will begin momentarily. So the source sheet I emailed, <coughs> emailed from our email list or attached to this link, this post, there is a link with the source sheet. You can meanwhile download it, print it out as we get ready to begin, excuse me, our lunch and learn. Every week we look at another topic from a Torah perspective and we're going to get started. So bear with me. As I get my strength back from getting over this uh, virus, and um, hi Neil, hi Gary, we are getting ready to begin. Today's topic is about a cookie. There's a cookie that is triangular, or at least this cookie is attempting to be <laughs> triangular, uh, at least this way. It's called the Hamantash, the Hamantash cookie. If you've heard, we're planning a hamantash bake in honor of Purim. And just get a napkin one second. And today's lesson, we will talk about hamantash. We'll talk about the significance of this cookie. How did this cookie um, get to become the Purim treats? Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> we find ourselves... Now, in the month of Adar, the Hebrew month of Adar, which is the Jewish month, which we have the holiday of Purim. Next Thursday evening and Friday is the holiday of Purim. Very joyous, I would say the jolliest day of the year on the Jewish calendar. You know, we have Simchas Torah, which is a very joyous day, as well as Purim. Purim is a very joyous holiday. And we'll learn next week. Um, next Tuesday we'll get to the details how this day is observed and the special mitzvahs that we perform on this day. But today we'll look a little bit, uh, we'll talk about the holiday, a little bit of the history and some of the lessons of the story of Purim. But we find ourselves in this month. And even though Purim is in another 10 days, but just being in the month, we go. Source number... Oh, there we are. Okay, I hope we're still there. If you're still there, if you could just give me a thumbs up. Got a little lost the connection there for a while. Uh, guess they're not used to us being here. <laughs> we had a little break. Okay, I think we're back. All right. So we're taking a look at source number one. If you're there, if you can just let me know. <clears throat> source number one. 
which is a quote from the Talmud. When the month of Adar begins, one increases in joy. We have a quote from the Talmud. Mishanichnas, thank you. Mishanichnas Adar Marbin Besimcha. When Adar, when the month of Adar begins, and by the way, today is the fourth day in the month of Adar. So from when the month of Adar begins, one increases in joy. It is a time for joy. Therefore, in the case of a Jew who has litigation, let him make himself available in Adar when his fortune is good. So this is a very joyous month. And although a joy a Jew should always be besimcha, uh, should always be joyful. You know, being happy is not just a right, but it is, according to the Torah, a uh, a mandate, a excuse me, obligation. The Torah wants us to be happy. It's not just if we want we can pursue happiness and be happy, but we are supposed to serve God with joy, and we're always serving God. We are supposed to be happy. In addition to constantly being happy when it comes to the month of Adar, which is the month we presently find ourselves in, Mishanichnas Adar, from when it enters, Marbin, we increase, we add, we, we have lots of joy. And it's a very auspicious time, it is a joyous time, it is a time when the, when the mazel, the, the luck of the Jewish people, is healthy and strong, as the Talmud says, and therefore, if a Jew, if a Jew has litigation, and he can postpone it, postpone it and, and arrange it that he should be available and should take place during this month, he should do so because the luck of the Jew is bori, is healthy, the, the, the mazel is very strong in the month of Adar. We know that every month has a, has a symbol, has the, the zodiacs and the mazel, called the mazolois. And the mazel for, for uh, the month of Adar is fish, and fish are very... Um, fish grow and they multiply a lot. You have lots of babies, lay lots of eggs, uh, thousands and thousands at a time. And uh, the fish are, are hidden away from the evil eye under the under the the sea, and therefore is a, a good sign. And this month is a good sign for the Jewish people. Okay, so we hear we have here a quote from the Talmud that the fact that we find ourselves in this month, it's already a special time. It's a time to be joyous, and it's a time when our muzzle is strong. Number two, let's take a look, and this is hinted in the actual Megillah, the Megillah or the book of Esther, is one of the 24 books of the Torah, the last one to be included in the, uh, you know, to be canonized of the official books of the, of the Torah. And the book is the book of Esther. And that's what we refer to as the Megillah. The Megillah means a scroll. It's usually written on a scroll. Different than a, than, than a Torah. It just uh, doesn't have the handles. It's just, uh, just a scroll. The Megillah, Megillah's Esther, the Megillah of Esther, the book of Esther has 10 chapters. And... In the Megillah, which recounts a story of Purim, and it's not just a recounting of the story, but it's a book of the Torah, which means that it, that it was written with divine inspiration. What does it say in the Megillah? Source 2, the month which has been transformed for them from one of grief and mourning to one of festive joy. The way the Megillah describes the transformation that it was, a man named Haman who wanted to annihilate all the Jewish people, and it was transformed. Even though there was one, there was one date in one month, the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, which was chosen and designated as the day to carry out the plot 
of annihilating the Jewish people was transformed. And the Megillah's term that the Megillah uses is and the entire month, the month which had been transformed. So because we find ourselves in the month when the holiday of Purim took place, it is not just on Purim itself when we celebrate, but the entire month or two weeks before and more than two weeks after we're celebrating the entire month was transformed. And where do we find this uh, significance of the month? We find it again, look earlier in the Megillah, when Haman came up with this plot. So it says, Haman decided he wants to kill out not just Mordechai, but the entire Jewish people. And just give a, when did the story happen? The story happened in the era between the first Beis Hamikdash, the first temple and the second temple, which is about 2,500 years um, ago. And the Jewish people, after living in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years, when the building of the temple of King Solomon was, when it was destroyed, they were taken into exile into uh, Babylon. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, as we discussed in a previous lesson. And for 70 years, the entire Jewish people were in exile uh, under the Babylonians and subsequently under the Persians who defeated the Babylonians. And at the time, the king, the Babylonian king, the Persian king, after King Cyrus, was King Achashverosh. Achashverosh is the king. Eventually, a couple of years later, they went back, many Jews went back up to Israel and built the second temple, and they lived there for many hundreds of years. This story took place in the sandwich, right between the first and the second temple era. And Achashverosh's... Um, Minister, top advisor, was a man named Haman. And Haman, or Haman, Haman disliked the Jewish people. He wanted to get all the honor. He didn't like that the Jews were not bowing to him, and so on. And he decides to wipe out the Jewish people, and he gets the king, Achashverosh's, consents. And how does Haman plot this? Source number three, the Megillah tells us, Haman plotted to do away with all the Jews throughout the kingdom of Achashverosh. Now, Achashverosh was not just the ruler of one specific place, it was the superpower of the time, the Persian kingdom, went to the Babylonians and the Persians, then came the Greeks, then came the Romans. So the Persians of the time were the mightiest empire, and the Megillah describes how King Achashverosh ruled over 127 provinces. And that was pretty much the entire civilization of the time. And all the Jewish people were living under his reign, and under his in, in his uh, region, under his rules, where the decree is taking place, that every single Jew, uh, every uh, Jewish neighbor, whoever has a Jewish neighbor, has the, the decree to kill his, his Jewish neighbors. And they had nowhere to flee. So Hama, we're doing, we're at source number three, the Megillah is telling us, so he's plotting to do away with all the Jews. So it says, poor, which means the lot, was cast before Haman concerning every month until it fell on the twelfth month. That is the month of Adar. Haman was very superstitious, and he wanted to, he knew the Jews were very spiritual, but he figured the temple was destroyed, they're in exile for so many years, their God has forsaken them, they have sinned. So it's a good time, but he wanted to make sure that his decree would, and his plot would, would be carried out. So what does he do? He draws a lot. That's what the word Purim means, the holiday Purim, because Pur means a lot. He drew a raffle. Which month would be the best month for for uh, his decree to work out. And the first month, let's say, was uh, the Midrash tells us it was Nisan, the, the month of Nisan. And they said, no, son, or they, he was told, Nisan is not a, a good month 
for the Jewish people to be wiped out because that's the month that they were liberated from their enslavement in Egypt. It's a good month for them. It's an auspicious month for them. They will be saved from your decree. So you went on to the next month and the next month. Every month they found something good that happened for the Jewish people. And finally it falls on the 12th month, the month of Adar, which is called the 12th month because the months start from Nisan because Nisan is the month when Passover took place. And that is the time when we became a nation and we were liberated from from Egypt. So that's considered the first month, even though it's not the first month of the year, but it's the first of the months. So Adar, which is the month we find ourselves in, is the last month, the 12th month. So finally, the lot fell on Adar. And no one had anything to say. Nothing good happened yet in the month of Adar. Says the Talmud, source number 4, once the lot fell on the month of Adar, Haman greatly rejoiced, for he saw this as a favorable omen for the execution of his plans. He said, the lot has fallen for me in the month that Moses died, which is consequently a time of calamity for the Jewish people. But he did not know, says the Talmud, that not only did Moses die on the seventh of Adar, but he was also born on the seventh of Adar. So Haman was very excited because oh, he knew that Moses, the first leader of the Jewish people, he passed away in the month of Adar, on the seventh day of Adar, hundreds and hundreds of years before, about a, close to a thousand years before, a little less. And if Moses passed away on the, in the month of Adar, that's a, that's a sign that his plans would be carried out. Because Moses wasn't just the technical leader of the Jewish people. He was the spiritual leader. As we discussed in a previous lesson, that the leaders, the tzaddikim, they are um, not just the, they're, they're the, the guidance for the people, and they are connected to every, to every soul. The, the, you know, their soul of the leader is called a, a general kind of soul, a soul that is associated and connected. It's like the heart of every Jew. So when the leader passes away, that, that shows on... Uh, on a void, on, on a calamity for every Jewish person. So if Moses passed on this month, Haman concluded that the entire month, he didn't choose that specific date, but that influences the entire month, and the entire month becomes a month of, uh, of uh, a not good luck for the Jewish people. And that's why Haman chose the month of Adar. It happened to be, he chose the 13th day of Adar. But we see here that the connection of the month Little did he know, says the Talmud, that Moshe, Moses was also born on that day. And the fact that Moses was born, that, that uh, in the words of the Talmud, that uh, you know, counteracts, counters the fact that he passed away. And on the contrary, the fact that Moses was born shows us the significance of a birthday. That was a source of good luck for the Jewish people, the day that his neshama ascended to this world. Well, what we see from all of this is the connection of the month. That even though we're 10 days before Purim, but because we find ourselves in the month of Adar, the month which Haman chose, thinking that it's a terrible month. But the Megillah says that the entire month was transformed into a good month. So we find ourselves in a special time. And it's a time, as the Talmud says, that when this month comes in, Marbin Basimcha, we increase in joy. How do we increase in joy? Should we go uh, get tickled? How do we increase in joy? Says the verses of Tehillim that joy is the Torah. Source number five, the orders of the Lord are upright, causing the heart to rejoice. We say this every Shabbos morning, that what causes our heart to rejoice? The words of Hashem. 
the orders of the Lord. And I inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. God's testimony, the Torah and its mitzvahs, when we study Torah, it gives us joy. And I'm certainly joyful to be back here after almost, I think, a month break. So it's good to be back to study Torah and being in the month of Adar, which the entire month is transformed into a special, special and auspicious time. And we increase in joy, so we study Torah. So let's take a look a little bit at the Megillah, uh, what we can learn. Now, there's this once, there's, there's this Jew that, you know, many have a custom, we'll discuss it next week, that on Purim they drink lots of wine and they get, uh, they get a little, um, they say a lot of l'chaim. And there was this one man that already on the first day of Adar, two weeks before Purim, he's already totally drunk. And they said, what's this? It's not Purim yet. And he said, because uh, why did Haman choose one day of the month of Adar? He could have chosen the whole month. Give a month's time for all the Jews to be in Adar. Do you think he's going to accomplish everything in one day? Why did he do one month? One, or why did Haman only choose one day? Because Haman knew, he knew the history of the Jewish people. He knew that uh, the Jews were in Egypt and they were liberated, they were saved, and they had the holiday of Passover. He knew that they had, um, you know, this uh, this uh, liberation, that liberation, they have holidays, and he figured out that if his plans fall through, then, the, then the, the Jews will have a holiday. And he didn't want that there should be a 30-day holiday for the Jewish people. So he chose one day, he said, if it happens, let it only be one day. So just after just to get Haman back, he, want, he was afraid of this holiday, I'm going to celebrate for 30 days. So we have the whole month to celebrate, and when every day we increase in more joy and more and, and more joy. Let's take a look at the Megillah. There's a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov that uh, I like to share. Shared it in previous years. Let's take a look at source number six. One who reads, and we're, we're getting we're getting to the cookies. We're getting to the hamantashen, and uh, soon you'll have your own hamantashen in your home. You're welcome to join the the, the hamantash bake on Purim Eve. Next Thursday, if you'd like to order a baking kit, you can let me know, and we'll put you on the list. Source number six, there is a halacha. One who reads the Megillah backwards has not fulfilled his obligation. There's an obligation to hear the Megillah on the holiday of Purim. Now, the Megillah has ten chapters. And the halacha is that the Megillah needs to be read, needs to be heard in order. You can't read chapter two and then go read chapter one. And then go to Shafor, and it has to be in the right order. Hi, Amy. Hi, Vika. The Megillah has to be read in the proper order, from the beginning until the end. First chapter, the second chapter. If you read it backwards, you start the second chapter, or you start this verse, and you go back to a previous verse, then you have not fulfilled your obligation. You could ask the rabbi to uh, read it again. And every halacha, every part of Torah, has many ways to interpret it. Of course, there's the literal meaning, but then there's the, the lesson part. And the Baal Shem Tov comes along and he teaches us, continuing in source number six like this. What does it mean to read the Megillah backwards? It doesn't just mean literally to read chapter two and then chapter one. One who reads the book of Esther backwards. We're in source number six in the middle. What does it mean backwards as an account of an event that happened thousands of years ago? Has missed the entire point of the mitzvah of reading the Megillah? The story told by the Megillah is the story of our everyday lives in all times and under all circumstances. As the Baal Shem Tov, as the Baal Shem Tov taught, just like when it comes to Torah, we're not just reading a history, a story of thousands of years ago. The stories of Torah, the mitzvahs of Torah contain eternal lessons applied to all of us in every time, 
in every place. And similarly, this Megillah, one who reads the Megillah backwards, comes Purim and he comes to Shul with his Megillah or his copy and he's listening to a story. There was once a king, Achashverosh, and he had a queen, then a second queen, her name was Esther, she was a Jew, and this happened and the Jews then were in danger and wow, God saved them. Beautiful story. That's that's a story. It's a good bedtime story. But that's not what uh, the Baal Shem Tov is teaching us here. The Baal Shem Tov is teaching us that if one reads the story backwards, as if it's something that happened back then, and it does not apply to us or to him today, then you have not fulfilled your spiritual obligation. That's not what it's all about. But the Megillah learning, studying the Megillah is about taking the lessons of the Megillah and applying it to our lives today. So let's not come into this Purim and miss our spiritual obligation. Let's learn the story. Uh, you can, there's so much to learn about the Megillah. There's so many books, there's so many commentaries, and so many ways to apply the lessons to our lives. Let's take an attempt over here a little bit and get a little familiar with the story and see one of the lessons. Source number seven. So we mentioned that Haman made this decree. Haman makes this decree, he's the top advisor, he's like the viceroy of King Achashverosh, and he uh, despises the Jews, and uh, together they uh, come up with a plan to annihilate all, all the Jewish people, should be destroyed and killed out on the 13th day of the month of Adar. Now, who was the queen at the time? The queen was Esther, because the previous queen Vashti was, was killed, because she disobeyed the king's command at a party that he threw to appear before him and the men, and she was executed on the advice of Haman. That's why Haman was promoted, because Achashverosh then got this new Jewish girl, her name was Esther, taken to the palace against her will. A beautiful um, uh, girl, Esther, or Hadassah, she was called, and she is uh, crowned as the queen, and Mordechai was her cousin, and according to the second opinion, it was not just her cousin, but actually his, his wife, uh, her husband, and she was forcefully taken from him, and Mordechai saved the king's life by overhearing two guards plotting to king the, kill the, poison the king, and Mordechai is also a minister of the palace. So when Mordechai hears the decree of Haman, so the Megillah tells us, Mordechai, source 7, Mordechai knew all that had transpired. And Mordechai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. Mordechai was, was uh, grieving. He hears the news that his people, the Jewish people, not just that they're exiled from their homeland in Israel, but now there is a decree that in some time, in a few months' time, all of the Jewish people will be wiped out. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to escape. This was the king of the universe. This was the superpower of the time. King Ahasuerus, the Persian king. What to do? Says the Midrash, that Mordechai realized that everything comes from Hashem, everything comes from God. And the Jewish people's faith needs to be bolstered. And needs to be, uh, their relationship with God needs to be strengthened and intensified. And Mordechai goes over to some children. Source number 8, the Midrash tells us, Mordechai stopped three Jewish children coming out of school. 
and asks them what they had learned that day. He's looking for a message. So he calls over the first boy, and the first child quoted the verse in Proverbs written by King Solomon, Do not fear sudden terror. Altira mi pachad pisaim. Nor the destruction of the wicked when it comes. Don't be worried that the wicked are um, saying to destroy you. The second quote, the verse, the second boy quoted the verse, contrive a scheme, but it will be foiled. Conspire a plot, but it will not materialize, for God is with us. And the third quote of the verse, to your old age, I am with you. To your hoary years, I will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. And I will sustain you and deliver you. Hearing the children's prophecy, Mordechai rejoiced. So Mordechai wanted to know, is there hope here? Is there hope for the Jewish people in this terrible time with this crazy decree from Haman? And he asked these boys, this was a common practice back in the day, to, uh, to uh, look for a sign, look for some sort of small prophecy by asking a child what you learned today and the verse or the passage that comes out of his mouth is sort of a message. <clears throat> Many have a custom in times of question to open a Jewish book, to open a Torah and the first word of the, of the page or uh, the message that they, their eyes come to first, that can be a response to them. This is quoted in the Talmud um, and some have this custom. So Mordechai asked these boys, what was Mordechai, what was Mordechai doing? Mordechai wanted to know, Mordechai looked to the children. Mordechai was the leader of the Jewish people at the time. He was the Roish HaSanherdun, the head of the high court, which was the <coughs> most important um, uh, you know, the body of authority of the Jewish people, which has been in existence since the days of Moses, many, many years before. And Mordechai knows that to save this situation of the Jewish people, it is dependent on the Jewish children, the future of the Jewish people. And he wanted to know what is on the minds of the Jewish boys, the Jewish children coming from Cheder, coming from school, what's on their minds. They know not what's on their minds in school. Mordechai didn't go into the school and say, hey, what are you learning right now? No. Mordechai waited till they came out of school. He wanted to know what the boys were thinking on their free time. What was their essence? What was their real belief? Not just what they're doing when in, their, in the confines of the school, of the cheder, of the yeshiva. What were they up to on the streets when they were leaving school? What was on their minds? And when the boys answered that, Al-Tira, don't be afraid, their faith in God was strong, Mordechai knew there is what to work with and there will be a salvation. And went ahead inspiring all of the Jewish people and specifically the children to come close to Hashem. What did he do? Source number 9, Mordechai gathered 22,000 Jewish children. He prayed with them and taught them Torah. He taught them how the Omer was offered in the Holy Temple. And remember, the Holy Temple was not standing at the time. But yet, these are the laws of the Torah. And they had faith that one day they would ascend back to Israel and rebuild the temple. What did he teach them? He taught them the laws of the Omer, which was one of the sacrifices which was offered up in the temple. Mordechai. Mordechai gathered the children. Now you would think, there's so many teachers, there's so many other people that can do this. Here's a beautiful lesson that the Rebbe uh, writes in a letter. Source 10 and 11. Source 10. Let us remember. 
that Mordechai was one of the heads of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a Greek word. It means, uh, I think it means 70. Because the high court was made up of 70 plus the head, so 71. So there can be a, an odd number to take votes. Mordechai was the, one of the heads of the Sanhedrin, the greatest Jew of his time in scholarship, piety, and all possible attributes of greatness. It says that Mordechai, um, you know, the Jewish people were exiled about 70 years before. They were exiled in, in um, phases. Not all of the Jews were exiled from Israel. Some were, were exiled even before the destruction of the first temple. But Mordechai voluntarily left the Holy Land of Israel and went into exile to see to it that the Jewish people are able to settle and, and, and teach them and so on. That was Mordechai. Nevertheless, he set everything aside in order to strengthen the foundations of education, actually going in person to teach the Holy Torah with piety to small children. Mordechai could have, given, could have delegated this task. Oh, the little children, oh, I'm studying with the big scholars, with the big thinkers, with the judges, with the sages, the rabbis. No, Mordechai got uh, down on his knees, sort of. He went out and he gathered children, not just one child, not two children, 22,000 Jewish children, and he personally taught them Torah. He personally put to it, put himself to it that they should be educated with the teachings of Torah. Source 11, no matter when one, what one's station in life is or how important one's activities seem to be, one must first and foremost dedicate at least some part of his time and efforts to the most important of all causes, saving our young generation through implanting the, into them devotion to all that has been holy to us ever since our ancestors received the Torah at Mount Sinai, devotion to the point of self-sacrifice. Only in this way can we make sure that the young generation will remain with us. Moreover, herein lies our strength against all Hamans and our security under God's protection, just like Mordechai recognized that in order to foil the plot of Haman, yes, later on he sent Esther to go in to plead, our case, plead the case before the king, but the first thing that uh, Mordechai instructed to be done, Mordechai gathers the Jewish children. And when we emphasize education when we take the young children and Mordechai himself the leader of the Sanhedrin he personally went gathered the children and taught them Torah and passed on the traditions of the Jewish people from hundreds of years onto the next generation and with that Mordechai knew he is foiling the plot of Haman with that he knows we're under the extra protection of Hashem and later on he took the steps whatever we need to do to try and uh, do our part to annul this decree. Source number 12. We have an interesting um, similar story. Just like Mordechai himself went to ensure the education of Jewish children. The Rebbe uh, had a campaign, I would say, a campaign, education campaign. Back in the day, children weren't given so much attention. Uh, 70 years ago or 60 years when the leadership began, the children weren't given so much attention. For a child to go and speak to the Rebbe personally was unheard of. They would come in, get a little blessing or something. Um, for the Rebbe to speak to children was for sure unheard of, of previous Rebbe's. But the Rebbe instituted, the Rebbe initiated 
children's campaigns. The Rebbe would speak just to children. The Rebbe would call rallies just for children, boys and girls, from uh, little children. Then also school, you know, later when when they had graduations, but just the young children. The Rebbe would come and speak to them on their level. He would speak. Usually when he spoke, his Yiddish was mixed a lot with Hebrew, but when he spoke to children, his Yiddish was much more uh, refined, and he spoke down that, you know, on their level, and they collected his teachings. Uh, all, when the Rebbe speaks to children with examples and ways that they can relate, the Rebbe um, really placed an emphasis on education, on children having their own siddur, their own push, their tzedakah box in their room, and really uh, starting a whole campaign actually called, a whole organization called Sivas Hashem, uh, the army of Hashem, comparing uh, children being in like God's army, just like you have soldiers and real army going to war against the enemies, so we're going to war against our evil inclination, against the forces of evil, and children are, you know, Rebbe empowered them, that they are, there's a whole system, you know, you could go up in rank until you become a general and uh uh, a sergeant, and uh, I know my daughter Gita already is part of this, and there's missions to fulfill. Every mitzvah is a mission, and they get points. A whole system that uh, edu- focuses on education. They are important. They are a soldier in God's army, and they can rise in rank. And they, um, you know, they, they, there's a whole, you know, in, in the school, there, there's a whole um, <clears throat> system. Focus all around children. The Rebbe personally would give tzedakah when he would come into shul. Almost every time that he came into shul, the Rebbe would, uh, if you would see a child from a little baby, and as long as they were under a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, the Rebbe would give them a coin and wait to see if they put them, putting them in the tzedakah box. It took sometimes many minutes, and the Rebbe's time was very precious, and yet took the time to train, give attention to these children, to for them to put a coin into the tzedakah box, train their hands for this special mitzvah. Just like Mordechai, just like Mordechai personally, excuse me, gathered the children and taught them Torah, you can say the Rebbe did the same. And we have an interesting story in the Talmud, actually the Rebbe would quote this story about a sage, his name was Chia. Rabbi Chia and Rabbeinu Yehuda, Judah the Prince. We learned about Judah the Prince at one of our Lunch and Learns probably uh, close to a year ago. And Judah the Prince, half a year ago, Judah the Prince said about this, How great are the work, the works, the actions of Chia. What did Chia do? He was a great sage. Source number 12, Rabbi Chia said, You know what I do? I am working to ensure, Abhiya lived after the Second Temple era, in times, uh, times of the Romans, about uh, 1800 years ago or so. Abhiya said, or the less, I am, I am working to ensure that the Torah will not be forgotten from the Jewish people. What did he do? It was a time when the Romans decreed it was hard to study Torah, not like today. Hashem, we can study Torah in all kinds of fashions. And. There was uh, there was an ignorance. There was a uh, many were illiterate and not not knowledgeable, especially children. <clears throat> As a result of the yeshivas being closed and so on. So what did Rabbi Chia do? 
I am working to ensure that the Torah will not be forgotten from Jewish people. Says the Talmud, what did Rechia say? For I bring flax and I plant it. First thing he did is he planted flax. And then when the flax is ready, I then weave nets from the flax fibers. I use the flax that I planted and I make nets. I then go out and trap deer. And I feed the meat to orphans. I take the deer and they slaughter the, the meat. Deer is a kosher animal, by the way. And the meats I feed to orphans, hungry people. And I form scrolls from the skins of the deer. The deer, the kosher animal, it's a, you have to use the skin of a kosher animal to write a Torah, to write holy words. And I go to a town that has no teachers of children in it, and I write five books of the Torah for five children. And I teach the six orders of the Mishnah to six children. To each and every one of these children I say, teach your order to your friends. And this way, all of the children will learn the whole Torah and the Mishnah. What did Chia do? He started a whole network of Torah study. We know we have the five books of the Torah. Parashas, Shemois, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Dvar. So what did he do? After his whole planting of the flax and the nets and the deer, the skins of the deer, finally he made scrolls and he took a whole sack of scrolls. He comes to one city and he sees there's no teacher, the children aren't studying Torah, or the, parent, the, parents, are, are, and the parents are busy working. So what does he do? He takes five scrolls. On one scroll, he writes, writes the entire book of Bereshus, the book of Genesis. And the second scroll, the second book, and so on. He takes five children. The first child, he teaches the child the first book. I guess it's faster. You teach one child. Then he takes a second boy, and he teaches him the, the, the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. And he tells these five boys, each of you know one of the books of the Torah. You have the scroll. Now you teach the rest. You teach the others the book that you know. And this way, all of these five boys knew all of the five books of the Torah. And then he says, okay, you five boys, you can go around and do the same to another five boys in town until all of the boys in town knew the five books. And the same thing he did with Mishnah. There are the six orders of Mishnah. So he wrote one order in each scroll and he did the same with another six boys. And that way, everybody knew their part and they were able to teach it to others. And he went around from town to town, said, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, withdrew the print, could have, he was a big sage, he could have said others should do this, but he personally went and he took care of the children's education. We want the future of the Jewish people, we want to have Hashem's protection, we want that any plans of any Haman should be foiled, we need to educate the next generation. That's the first thing that Mordechai did. And that's what we tried to do. We see another Jewish child, a boy, a girl, we need to pass on the values, the ideals of Torah, passing on the tradition of the Jewish people, the faith, and that's what Mordechai did, that's what Chia did, and that's what we should do. And that way, when we read the story of the Megillah, we're not going to be reading the story like a story that happened back then, that's what Mordechai did, no, no, no. The stories of the Megillah are relevant to us. Let's move on to the Hamantash. Hamantash. This cookie over here is called a Hamantash. What does Hamantash mean? Why is this cookie called Hamantash? And why must we eat it on Purim? Besides that it's very yummy. So Hamantash, uh, one simple 
explanation is probably that originally it wasn't called Hamontash, it was called Montash. Montash is a Yiddish word, or two Yiddish words. Mon in Yiddish means poppy seeds. That's how you say poppy seeds in Yiddish, Mon. Then you have a word called Tash. Tash means a bag, a sack. A knapsack is a tash. So this cookie is a little bit of a pocket for the poppy seeds. Uh, originally, where you know it's mentioned already a few hundred years in, in our sources, this kind of cookie, but it's always mentioned not with jelly, but with poppy seeds in the middle. And the way this cookie is made, by folding the sides, it's a pocket, a bag for the poppy seeds. So that's probably the original cookie called montash, a pocket of seeds, a pocket of mon. And somehow from montash came to hamontash, because haman is in the story of Purim. So why do they eat these cookies? It was just a way of celebrating Purim, you know, nice cookie. But obviously everything has a deeper reason. Uh, how did it really get to hamontash? Let's take a look at source number 13. Gila <clears throat> says, That night is one part of the Megillah, chapter 6. Halfway through the Megillah, we, the, the one reading the Megillah raises his voice because that's where the action begins. That's where this miracle begins. That's when... Things started to change for the good of the Jewish people. On that night, the king's slumber, the king's sleep was was uh, troubled. Source 13, that night, King Ahasuerus' sleep, sleep deserted the king. And he ordered the book of records, the annals, to be brought. And it was read to the king. And here, the miracles, the, the, the interesting things started we happened to read that Mordechai saved the king's life when the guards tried to plot to poison the king. And Mordechai was the one that saved the king's life and he was never repaid. And so on the story goes. So the king Ahasuerus was asleep. Well, it doesn't actually say the king Ahasuerus. It just says the king. The, king. the king's sleep was deserted. So says the Midrash, source 14, on that night, the slumber of our three forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were sleeping for thousands of years already since their passing, was also disturbed because of the evil that was to befall the Jewish nation by the schemes of the wicked Haman. They pleaded with God to spare the Jewish people from destruction, their descendants, and the merit of the forefathers, Haman's power weakened. There's a whole reality going on that we are unaware of. Says the Midrash, on that night, it wasn't just the king Ahasuerus who had a problem sleeping, it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they felt that their descendants, the entire Jewish people, is in grave danger of being annihilated. They woke up from their sleep. Whatever that means. And they pleaded to Hashem. Now how many forefathers do we have? We have Abraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Because all Jewish people come from Abraham, come from Jacob. And, and his father was Isaac, his father was Abraham. 
But uh, after Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. We don't all come from Reuven. We don't all come from Simon or Levi or Judah. We, everybody comes from a different tribe. So they're not considered the, the next... Uh, you know, there are only three fathers. The next ones are not called fathers because they're not. They're some of they're, some of them are uncles. Judah may be uh, my grandfather, my my forefather, or he might be my uncle. I'm not sure what tribe I come from. Well, from my mother's side, I know I come from Levi, but the tribes go by the father. Well, most of us today come from Judah or Benjamin. But either way, the fathers are only three. So the cookie, the Hamantash cookie, has three corners. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Haman was Tash. In Hebrew, Tash means weak. That's what the word in Hebrew. So before we said in Yiddish, it's called Montash, a pocket for poppy seeds. But in Hebrew, Haman Tash means Haman was weakened. How was he weakened? By the three corners. Who are the three corners? Not just his hat. Well, that's either yes or no that he had a three-cornered hat. But Haman Tash. Tash means weak. Tashush means weak in Hebrew. Haman was weakened by the prayers of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And that is another idea of this cookie. And specifically, not just uh, having a poppy seed pocket, but in another shape, but specifically in three corners. Let's look at one more idea, which will conclude our lesson for today. Um, source 15. Megillah is called the Megillah. What does Megillah mean? Megillah can mean uh, something like a scroll, something which rolls. Like in Hebrew, a uh, galgal is like a wheel, something that uh, rolls, it's a scroll. But there's another idea to Megillah. Now, if you look in the Megillah, if you look in the Megillah, there's no one part of the story that you can say, oh, that's a miracle. You know, when it comes to Pesach, the fact that the Nile turned to blood is a miracle. The fact that exactly at midnight, every firstborn died, that's a miracle. The fact that they were able to leave Egypt and so on. <coughs> it comes to Hanukkah. The fact that the one jug of oil, which was enough for one night, lasted for eight days, that's a miracle. And so on, other holidays, other miracles that happened to the Jewish people. But Purim, if you read the story of the Megillah, what happened? There was a king, Achashverosh. He had a wife. Her name was Vashti. She disobeyed his command to appear before the men. So he was. she was executed. Okay, he was a crazy king. It says The Talmud says he was, he was a fool. First he, first he killed his wife on the advice of his friend. And then he killed his friend on the advice of his wife. His second wife, Esther, advised him to kill Haman. That's a fool. First he killed his wife on the advice of his friend Haman, and then he killed his friend Haman on the advice of his wife Esther. So, that's a miracle. I mean, it happened. People, uh, he killed his wife. He was a king. He killed he killed many people. And then, happened to be he liked Esther, okay? Listen, he liked her. So she was taken. And Esther became the queen. Haman made this decree. Mordechai happened to overhear two guards plotting to kill the king, poison the king, and he, and he understood the language, the Tarshish, and he reported to the king. He happened to be there, okay? Things happen. And then, this is a few years later, then came out the decree 
And then Esther goes into the king, even though she wasn't called, she wasn't allowed. And the rule was that if you weren't summoned to the king, even your his own wife would execute, would be executed. Anyone who walked into his room without permission would be executed. And you know, they were so afraid of of um, of uh, anybody uh, rebelling against the king. They, were, they weren't allowed to come into the king, even his wife, without permission. And yet the king loved her. And even though she came in without permission, he spared his life, her life. Okay. We can understand that. And then the fact that he couldn't fall asleep and they happened to be reading the story that Mordechai saved the king's life also. And the fact that uh, when Haman was, when Esther revealed that as Haman that wants to kill out, you know, Esther didn't tell the king that she was Jewish. And the fact that that, that itself, she, she didn't tell the king who she was. And the fact that right then Haman was building a gallows to kill more, a whole, everything, there's no part in the story that you can pinpoint and say, that's a miracle. That's the splitting of the sea, the sea split. That, 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 that doesn't happen in the story. What does the Megillah do? The Megillah is a book which has 10 chapters. The, the story spans over I think, 12 years or so. Many years. Megillah, the word Megillah comes from the word revelation. Giloi, Megillah. To legalot in Hebrew, to reveal. The Megillah, by putting the entire story together, all of the steps, and you see that the series of the sequence of events, you see that there is a guiding hand. There is something hidden behind all of this that is someone putting everything in place, orchestrating everything that happens. It's not coincidence that this happened and that happened. Yes. We may not see any splitting of the sea, but the message of Purim is that even when we don't see open miracles, we're also experiencing miracles. We're also experiencing experiencing God's, I don't want to say intervention, but God's orchestration. Source 15. In earlier times, our ancestors were accustomed to experiencing open miracles. Came to Jericho, the walls crumbled. Amazing miracles. In a time of exile, we don't necessarily experience openly revealed miracles anymore. Nevertheless, the Purim story shows that this does not mean that we've been abandoned. On the contrary, God is ever-present. He's just operating in a behind-the-scenes fashion, just as the filling of the hamantash is hidden within the dough. The Hamantash brings out the message of Purim, the message of the Megillah. Megillah means to reveal. The Megillah comes to reveal to us that even though God's name, by the way, is not mentioned in the whole Megillah, every other book of the Torah, you have God's name mentioned. The Megillah, of course we all know the salvation came from God. But the, uh, God's name is not mentioned in the Megillah. Okay, the simple reason is because it was uh, going to be read by uh, the Persians and they would desecrate the, the book. Uh, but obviously there's a deeper reason. God's name is not mentioned because God at no point was felt openly. And, oh, this is God. This is the miracle. This is supernatural. God's name is hidden. The Megillah comes to reveal it. The Megillah, by putting the story together... We realize that everything fell into place because God is behind it. Yes, we get dressed up. Why? Why do we get dressed up on, on Purim? Because 
the story, the, the God's name is hidden. We don't see openly God's um, presence and, and, and His miracles. But the story teaches us that even in times of exile, even in such times, Hashem's hand is right there. Megillah, it's a revelation. And that's the Hamantash. The Hamantash is that on the outside you have just the dough. And the sweet stuff, the jelly or the poppy seeds or whatever you want to put in your hamantash, that's usually covered up mostly. This hamantash, it's a little bit sneaking out. What's the idea? It's covered up. That's the hamantash. The sweet stuff are covered up. But we know that inside there is a plan. Nothing happens by chance. And just like the Megillah story took many years, God's ultimately the only one that sees the entire story from beginning of creation until the end of creation, the entire world, and everything just fits into place somehow. We don't understand why everything happens. Things that are quite annoying can happen. But when we think about the message of the Hamantash, we think about the story of Purim. And it's called the Megillah because the Megillah reveals to us that nothing happens by chance. Hashem is orchestrating everything that happens, even if we won't see mana flying down from heaven. Yet, Hashem is still behind this. Hashem is orchestrating. Everything has a reason. Everything has a purpose. Sometimes we'll see it. Sometimes it takes a couple of years. Sometimes we may never see it. But we know that even if it's hidden, it, there's sweet stuff inside. What we got to do is just let go. Let go and let God. We're not fully in control of what happens. We're in control how we perceive it. We're in control how we react to it. But if we let go and realize that it's Hashem orchestrating, Hashem is taking care of everything, we're in His hands. If we let go and just let God do His thing, then we can enjoy our hamantash and know that it's ultimately the best thing for us. So just go along with God's plan. And that way, getting back to the beginning of the class, we can be more joyful. When it comes into the month of Adar and we remember the message of the Hamantash, we can increase in our joy. If we think that we're in control and we're responsible for everything, then it's a heavy load and we get very worried. We have to take care of everything. We have to make sure everything's okay. But if we know that it's in Hashem's hands, and Hashem is the one orchestrating everything that happens and we're in His hands. And we let go and we let God carry the burden. Yes, we got to do our part. we got to be safe. we got to make the plans and so on. But ultimately we know it's in Hashem's hands. If we let go and we let God, then we will be able to be happier. We'll be able to be calmer and really live up to the teaching of the Talmud that when other comes in, we increase in joy. Thank you for joining our Lunch and Learn. It's good to be back. And uh, hopefully next week I'll have my full strength back um, to be able to study once again. Next week on Tuesday at 12.15, we will study more about Purim. We will uh, focus on the observance of the day of Purim, which is coming up next Thursday evening and Friday the special mitzvahs that apply on this day and the reasons, the ideas behind them. So stay tuned for next Tuesday. 
We'll be back also Thursday at 7.30 for another episode, also in the theme of Purim. Uh, once again, if you have not yet uh, seen, we are planning a Hamantash Bake Purim Eve, Thursday evening. If you haven't reserved a baking kit, you can let us know. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for joining. It's been a pleasure studying Torah together. I missed it for a couple of weeks. I look forward to next week's studying Torah once again in good health, in good strength, and with joy and happiness. Sei gesund and be well.